Well, good morning. It's great to see you here. I thought I should put in my back pocket a sermon on the flood, just in case. Uh, but we're going to keep going and hope that all will go well. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness to us in giving us your Son. And we thank you for this fellowship that we enjoy. We thank you for the privilege it has been day after day in this place to sit under your word, to be shaped by you. And we pray that this morning, as we again sit under your word, that you might address us. Would you give us that boldness and confidence, that positive view of the future that comes from your promise and your truth? And all of this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you'd be forgiven for feeling over this past week that the foundations have shifted. Halfway across the world, the world's largest democracy is in upheaval. America is deeply divided. The processes of democracy are called into question. There are recounts happening, runoffs being held, legal challenges being mounted, and a week and a half after a presidential election, there has not yet been a concession or an officially declared win. So many of the freedoms we enjoy have been championed by the people and leaders of the United States over the years, but these seem to be unravelling before our eyes. There are doomsayers and optimists publishing their interpretations of events all over the internet, but something is happening. Though the exams may have kept you from noticing, here in Australia, a simmering crisis in the Anglican Church of Australia turned explosive just two days ago. It happened elsewhere years ago, of course, in America, in Canada, in New Zealand. The GAFCON movement emerged to affirm and promote biblical truth and gospel mission, and also to protect those left stranded by the outrageous departure from biblical truth by Christian leaders in each of those countries and in other places too. And after years of warning, it erupted here in Australia this week. You see, in August last year, the Synod of the Diocese of Wangaratta passed legislation to allow the blessing of same-sex marriages. A question was raised about the legality of the move and it was referred to the Appellate Tribunal of the General Synod, the final forum in Australia for discipline appeals from a diocese. The tribunal could not come to a unanimous decision and so sought advice from both the House of Bishops and a group of clergy elected by the General Synod for the purpose, the Board of Assessors. Both groups advised unanimously that this move was contrary to the teaching of scripture and therefore not permissible in the Anglican Church of Australia, it simply is not possible to bless behaviour that God has said will exclude a person from inheriting the kingdom of God. To claim to do so can only have devastating consequences both now and on the day of judgment. But on Wednesday afternoon, the tribunal published a majority opinion that set aside the advice of both those groups and held that the services of blessing could go ahead. Despite warnings that to do so would tear the Anglican Church of Australia apart, two diocesan bishops have since indicated that they plan to go ahead at the earliest opportunity. 
For Anglicans who believe in the authority of scripture above and judging all the determinations of tribunals and synods and even councils, this is a line in the sand. Our brothers and sisters around the world have suffered greatly and lost everything because they have stood with the Bible against their denomination on this issue. In June 2002 in Canada, the Anglican Diocese of New Westminster voted to draw up services to bless same-sex unions. A group of delegates, indicated, in, including the, the highly respected Regent College Vancouver professor J.I. Packer, walked out of the Synod in protest. Packer later published the, his reasons in an article in Christianity Today entitled, Why I Walked. He and those with him had stood where they'd always stood, on the authority of scripture but the Synod as a whole decided to walk away and Packer and his friends, including a graduate of this college, David Short, were left stranded. They lost their church building, their rectories, they lost everything except the respect of those who shared with them a commitment to the authority of scripture, except the salvation they share with us in Christ. In 2018, the General Synod of the Anglican Church in Eritrea, New Zealand and Polynesia followed the example of New Westminster. A number of faithful Anglican churches and the ministries associated with them likewise felt abandoned and left stranded. They stood where they'd always stood, on the authority of scripture. Many of the congregations in that church were forced to leave everything, suffer the loss of everything, because they were not prepared to depart with the others from the teaching of scripture. The bishop of the new diocese that was created under the auspices of GAFCON, Bishop J. Bean, is a graduate of this college. There will be a confrontation at or before the General Synod of the Anglican Church of Australia scheduled for mid next year. Evangelicals who value our Reformation heritage and the place of the Bible in our lives and ministries will not be prepared simply to follow as those who endorse these moves break fellowship and leave the teaching of scripture in tatters. The gospel is too precious for that. Our salvation is too precious for that. We stand where we have always stood, on the authority of scripture. But others in our denomination want to walk away from us and from the good word that God has given us. So the foundations feel like they're shaking. And even those with decades of experience are wondering whether the Anglican Church of Australia can survive. How can we who love Christ and his word look David Short and Jay Bean in the eye if we're not prepared to stand up and be counted as they have stood up and been counted? If we're not prepared to lose everything except what was won for us in Christ? It really is very serious and for some of us even frightening. We can't be certain how this will play out, but something very serious is happening. And for those of us who are comforted because you're not an Anglican, <laughs> and your denomination or association has not gone down that path, beware. The pressure will come your way soon and sooner than you think. In the wonderful providence of God, in our series of studies on Matthew's Gospel on Fridays, we come this final Friday 
to a passage in which we hear a promise we need to hear when it feels like the foundations have shifted. It's an extraordinary promise when you consider it, though it has been misunderstood time and again over the past 2,000 years. So on the back page of the sheets that you've been given, you'll find Matthew 16, or the second half of it. It's important to remember the context of the words we read this morning. Um, over the past few chapters, the conflict between Jesus and the religious authorities, the guardians of Israel's religion, as they would have considered themselves, have been mounting. At the same time, Jesus had been doing things which heralded the fact that something extraordinary was taking place among them. The feeding of 5,000 Jewish men and their families, a foretaste of the great messianic feast, the healing of those whose lives had been disrupted or disfigured by disease, great messianic blessings, the feeding of 4,000 Gentile men and their families, the Messiah's not just for the Jews. And when in the face of all that, the Pharisees and Sadducees demand a sign from heaven, prove yourself to us, convince us, give us a sign that we'll choose to endorse, Jesus pointed to the sign of Jonah, the sign of God's prophet swallowed up in judgment. And then he said, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Beware of the way their unbelief and refusal to come to me, their determination to make their own rules, impose their own opinions in a way which obscures the testimony of scripture to me, beware their teaching and its effect. And then we read from verse 13. Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi and asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Oh, how privileged you are, Simon Bar-Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he gave strict instructions to the disciples that they tell no one that he is the Christ. From that point on, Jesus showed his disciples that, they, that he must travel to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day. Upon hearing this, Peter began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this will not happen to you. Turning to him, Jesus said to Peter, Get away from me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me because you are not thinking God's thoughts, but human thoughts. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. For what benefit will it be to a person to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Or what will a person give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, 
and then he will repay each according to his deeds. Truly I say to you that some of those who are standing here will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's a wonderful part of Matthew's gospel. It's full of rich truth. And for those of you who will be with us next year, we're going to return to it at the beginning of the year, God willing, under the, under, in a sermon under the heading, uh, following this kind of Christ. But this morning, I want to zoom in on the promise at the centre, which is not only vital in the light of the current crisis among Anglicans in Australia but of, and Christians around the world, but it will be a vital promise for you to hold on to as you leave this place to do those good works which God has prepared for you to walk in, wherever that may be. For it is a promise that puts your ministry and the machinations of individual churches and denominations and even the whole of world history in perspective. You recognised it, didn't you? After Simon Peter had made his confession, a confession he could not have stumbled upon by his own ingenuity, not because he was clever um, and full of astute analysis of what was going on around him, a confession he could only make as a result of the powerful supernatural work of God revealed to you by my Father in heaven, Jesus told him. After that confession, Jesus said to him, I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. For a moment, Peter is given to see that the Messiah, the long-promised king and deliverer of Israel, had arrived. Jesus was the one the promises were all about, the king whose kingdom would last forever, without all the defects and compromises and disappointments of the kingdom of David and of his successors in the Old Testament, the one who would do what all those earlier kings from David's line failed to do, the one faithful Jews had been waiting for, the one, Peter no doubt didn't see it yet, the one the nations most desperately needed to hear about. And just how does Jesus describe what he's going to do at this point and in this context? Defeat the enemies of God's people and release them from those who've oppressed them? He will do that at the cross, Paul will point out in Colossians 2. Sit on the throne God has established and rule all creation? He will do that at his ascension as the writer to the Hebrews makes clear in the very first verses of his word of exhortation. Finally deal with our seemingly eradicable guilt that deserves God's judgment? He will do that at the cross and in his resurrection, as Paul made clear to the Romans. But here, once Simon Peter has recognised he is the Messiah, the son of the living God, he says, I will build my church and dear brothers and sisters it is worth taking the time to think very carefully about each part of that promise on the foundation the rock of this confession or more precisely on the apostles testimony and confession of who Jesus actually is and the significance of this on that foundation Jesus Christ the Messiah and the Son of the Living God will build his church. Notice who's doing the building. I will build my church. 
it is possible to get distracted and to begin to think that we are building Christ Church, that this is a fragile and uncertain thing that I must bring about and which can be threatened or easily overturned by my failure or the failure of others around me. But whatever is happening in your little patch or in the world as a whole, it is Jesus who is building his church. When we see seasons of extraordinary growth, moments of revival and reformation, know for certain that it is Jesus who is building his church. But when we don't see the results we've been hoping for, and when our prayers don't seem to be answered, at least not as we thought they'd be answered, Jesus is still building his church. When you have the wonderful joy of fellowship with like-minded brothers and sisters, and your team is working so well together and you're getting things done, Jesus is building his church. And when you're faced with disappointment or betrayal, when there's conflict rather than unity, when things aren't working so well and you aren't getting things done, Jesus is still building his church. The privilege we are given is to be part of that building program. We're given the inestimable privilege of sharing his gospel with others and helping people see what it means to live in that gospel and in the light of that gospel to enlarge their view of God in his glory and majesty, grace, love and compassion, to model it in our own lives and to share it with others. And every one of us will do that in a faltering and imperfect way. We'll make mistakes, we'll miss opportunities and we'll be disappointed and frustrated with ourselves, let alone anybody else from time to time. Yes, we're called to be faithful and we will be held to account, but know for a surety that it is Jesus who is building his church. The great comfort of this promise lies in who it is who's making the promise. When Jesus makes a promise, he always, always keeps it. This is not just another set of words. It is the promise of the King, the promise of the Son who has come in the power of the Spirit to bring us to the Father, and he will do it. And the foolish and unfaithful pronouncements of bishops and tribunals cannot thwart that. The undoing of Western freedoms and efforts to remove all reference to God in the public square cannot overturn that. There is no obstacle that would cause Jesus to abandon this building program. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. I will build my church. So are you going to hold on to that promise? There is a profound positivism, even optimism, that is part of Christian life and ministry. Not the kind of Pollyanna-ish, everything is rosy, even when it's clearly not. Not a blind refusal to acknowledge the dangers and the threats and simply going on as if they don't matter, because they do. And they will matter enormously on the last day. Just look at the last verse from our passage. But a positivism, an optimism, that is really simple confidence that in the midst of everything that is happening, 
and even in some unknown and perhaps unknowable way because of everything that's happening, Jesus is keeping his promise. On this foundation, at this rock, I will build my church. But friends, if we should notice who is doing the building, and for that reason, the certainty of this promise that will be kept, we should also notice what it is he's building. My church, Jesus says. Too easy to confuse that with my group. It's too easy to identify that as something I can see and measure and identify and and claim. You will know that there are Old Testament residences all the way through this passage. We've noticed how the very mention of Jesus as the Christ reminds us of David, the Christ of the Old Testament, the leader and deliverer of God's people, the king who received great promises in 2 Samuel 7 but could never live up to them and neither could any of his successors in Israel's history. But with the language of church, which really just means gathering or assembly, and rock, and especially the personal claim, my church, another Old Testament image comes to the fore. When God gathered and assembled his people before another rock, great Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, and pronounced, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Then those promises were based on the redemption God had accomplished for his people from slavery in Egypt. God the deliverer, gathering his people, claiming them as his own, giving them a special identity and a special mission. Well, here at this rock of testimony, upon the foundation of this recognition that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel and the Son of the living God, Jesus says he will build his assembly. He will build his church. Human institutions rise and fall. Even human religious institutions even human Christian institutions. But they are not ultimately what Jesus' promise was about. Those institutions might be wonderful instruments in God's hand in the ongoing fulfilment of that promise, but they are not what the promise is about. God has used the great nation of America in remarkable ways to see the gospel go forward in the world. Think of the great American Christian leaders he's given us over the centuries. Think of the support and resourcing of gospel ministry all over the world. Think of the books you've read, the sermons you've listened to, and if you've had the opportunity, the conferences you've attended. But if the great nation of America goes the way of all other nations before it, if it crumbles and disintegrates, which I earnestly pray it won't, That will not have changed in the slightest Jesus' faithfulness to this promise. And if the Anglican Church of Australia dissolves, its constitutional unity shattered and the institution itself consigned to irrelevance like so many other denominations before it, that won't change in the slightest Jesus' faithfulness to this promise. I rejoice in the Anglican heritage of Cramner and Grindle and Ryle and Whitfield and Simeon and Stott and all the rest, 
I'm grateful for the 39 articles and the homilies and the immersion in the Bible that we find in the Book of Common Prayer, but the survival or otherwise of the denomination in Australia is not what this promise is about. When things are going well for you in ministry, and just as importantly, when there is struggle and difficulty, you'll need to hold on to this promise and remember that Jesus promised to build his church, not your ministry, whatever form your ministry might take. The church, the assembly that Christ is building, is the one spoken about in Hebrews 12. The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. It's the church, the congregation, the assembly Paul talks about in Ephesians 2. God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's the assembly of the saints from every tribe, nation and language that we hear about in Revelation 7 who gather around the throne and give praise to God and the Lamb for the salvation that is beyond imagining. Jesus is building that church. So it might feel as if the foundations are shaking, but they're not. The foundation, the rock upon which Christ is building his church, is as sure and immovable as ever, and I need to remember that. And you need to remember that. And you'll need to remember that in the years ahead. Let's all pray that there will be widespread repentance and the manifestations of Christ's great heavenly church here on earth might once again give our clear and unmistakable witness to Jesus the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Let's all pray that the turmoil of the present might give way to an exciting new age of missionary endeavour in this country and right around the world. But don't be dismayed. The one who always, always keeps his promise said... On this rock, I will build my church. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this sure promise. And in our uncertain world, we pray you might help us by your spirit to hold on to it. And we pray, Lord Jesus, may that day soon come when we stand with all your people around your throne and thank you for a salvation not only accomplished and completed, but realised in a new heaven and a new earth. And this we ask of you, our Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.